Good morning and welcome. We're going to uh, pray together before we get into the message this morning. I want to pray for a church uh, in Plano, Texas, uh, Hunter's Glen Baptist Church. One of the guys that I work with, Lance Shoemake, at IGO Global has been called as their interim pastor, and he's been there since August, and I would appreciate you praying with me uh, for him, and that church had an, a, a difficult, that church had a difficult year last year, and so uh, it's just been a really neat thing to watch um, Lance move in as a good shepherd and a gospel preacher there at that church. So um, let's pray for them and pray for our own hearts, and um, then we'll get into the message. Father, I'm grateful right now for teammates and partners and gospel preachers that are um, standing and delivering this morning. And I'm grateful that you sent Hunter's Glen Baptist Church, Lance Shoemate, to pastor them in this interim transition time. I'm I'm thankful that you are undoing him and um, putting him back together with the gospel and that he puts that on display when he preaches and he feeds your sheep well there and I'm grateful for your hand in that. I pray that the people of Hunter's Glen would be attentive this morning as he preaches and that um, Lance would be transparent and authentic as he is uh, with your word and that you would use him and your spirit would intervene in that moment in the delivery of the message. And um, I'm grateful for what you're doing there. I pray the same for us, that you would prepare our hearts to receive um, a message that will keep us in awe. And um, I pray that you would help me, because I don't have a lot of practical stuff this morning, that you would help me and uh, help us hear what's really going on here when you show up. And when you show up as a baby. And so we pray for clarity. We're so thankful for what you've done in this church with these children who are singing and worshiping. And that they're involved early and often in this corporate time of worship. Uh, We are blessed because of what you are doing among us and the gift that these children are. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to be in uh, John chapter 1. Samantha read from that passage a while ago, and we're going to be in John 1 and Luke 2 this morning. Those are the two places you'll need to be thinking about turning. Um, Scott's messages have been pointing us to substance. We've gone uh, through and looked at the shadowy representatives of what might be in God's salvation and who he might send and these shadowy sinners who failed every time. And he's talked about the substance that Jesus is, the substance that Christ is. And so that's what we are coming to this morning. And um, we're going to take what I hope is a new look and a more in-depth look at the manger. This incarnation of God on earth. God becoming man via a baby. So that we'll have another particular to hold on to as we continue to fight after being faithful and believing this story that is our story. So I want to take a closer, in-depth look at the manger. I don't hear it a lot around here, but in our culture, in our Christian subculture, I do hear uh, the phrase. And even I've said it, and I've prayed 
God, we, we want you to do big things among us. You've probably heard that before. People pray that. Maybe before an event or uh, maybe before worship time or before a camp or a getaway or whatever. I hear that a lot. I've prayed it. God, just do something big among us. Do, do something new. Do something special. Do something big so that we can say only God could do that. And so what I want us to do today is to stop just a minute and realize he's done that in this incarnation. So we, we, we're not pining for more because we can sound like Philip who said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, will, you're doing some cool tricks, but will you show us God? Can we see God? And Jesus looked at Philip and said, you are looking at him, bro. That's me. I'm here. <laughs> and that's where I want us to be, to go from Philip asking that question of do something big to understanding what he's done and how big this manger is, this incarnation. And that's on Monday, that's all I had. I just knew it was big, and I thought, man, this is big. And I told Jeff, and I told Scott, I was like, can I just get up there and go, man, this is big. Let's pray. Let's go, Lord's Supper, and go home. I can't do that. But what helped me was what Scott and Ben have mentioned time and time again. It's climbing into the story. That is what's helped me get past just this is big and understanding what's really happening here. And so we're going to start in John 1, and I hope you can see today, this is the goal. I, I, I sympathize with Ben. He said it a bunch. When he stands up here and he says, look, I don't have any like practical, helpful, get you through work on Wednesday type stuff this morning. It's just my hope and my prayer is that you're in awe of what he's done here in this manger and what's happening in that manger and what happened in that manger and what that means. I just want you to be in awe of it. So we're going to look at this great leap of the God of John 1 showing up in Luke 2. So let's open our Bibles, if you haven't already, to John chapter 1. We'll look at the first five verses, and then we'll look at 9 through 18. But let's look at these first five verses. When John is talking about the Word here, he is talking about the Son of God. The Son of God, the God's Son. He's talking about God in the person of His Son. We're not talking about Jesus yet, and here's where I want you to keep that clear. Jesus was the baby named Eight days after he was born, as commanded by the angel to Mary. That's Jesus. Jesus is incarnate God on earth. We're not there yet, okay? So don't think that yet. We're talking about God with the Father. That's what he's talking about here. The God's Son, the Son of God, the Word, the Logos. That's what we're talking about. We're not at Jesus yet, so hang on. In the beginning, verse 1, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Here's, here's three things we're going to look at. The phrase, without him, not anything was made that was made. The Father did not create anything without the Son. This Son of God was present at creation. When the Father spoke it and said, let there be light, there wasn't light except that through the Son there was light. You see that? He didn't send the Son of God on an errand to create light. He spoke it, and because the Son is light, there's light. You see how they're creating together here? And that's the Son of God creating, creator. Not anything that was made was made without the Son of God. Not anything. Father speaks it. Because there's a Son of God, it happens. You see it? He was God at creation. He was with God. He is God. And in that phrase, in him was life, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. All life is in him. Now, here's the key word, in. He created, the Father created the world by and through the Son of God. But life is in him. And there's a difference. We don't get life through him. We don't get life. Life doesn't just happen by him. He is life. And in our Western mind, we have trouble with that, and I'm still having trouble with it. But he is life. We don't get it from him. We don't get it by him or through him. We get it because he is. Because he is, there is life. It's not something that he gives us a portion of, it's not something that he, we get by him or through him. We get it because he is. He is life. Without him, there is no life. No life at all. He sustains all life. Why? Because he is. Because he's God. Because the Son of God is God, there's life. And then this third phrase here, the life was the light of men. Everything is dark and darkness reigns. Except there's the Son of God. Without Him, there's darkness and darkness reigns. There is no light except for Him. Revelation 21, 22, John's revelation. He says, I saw, and he's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. This new heaven that God is creating that Jesus is it's being placed under his feet, all things, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that's what John is seeing here. And he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, God the Father and God the Son. That's the light of the new heavens and the new earth. Listen, the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The lamp for the new heavens and the new earth is the Son of God. We don't even need a sun and a moon in the new heavens and new earth. That's how much light he is. We don't need a sun. We don't need the moon anymore. In fact, there won't even be any night anymore. He goes on to say, By its light the nations will walk, and the kings on earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. Why? Because the Son of God is there. No night. Because God is there. God's Son there. The God's Son, the Son of God, the Word is there. No night, ever. Don't even need the sun and moon. 
That's who we're talking about here. When we say God came, when we say Emmanuel, God with us, when we say incarnation, we're talking about this God, the light and life of men, the creator of all things, sustainer of all things. That's who we're talking about. And let's look at verse 9. Skip down to verse 9 there. John chapter 1. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, verse 14. And the word, this God we've just been talking about, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, don't just run past that verse. That, that's what we're going to look at in Luke 2. How does that happen? How did he become flesh and why is it a big deal? We're going to look at that in just a minute. The word, this God we've been speaking about, that we won't need a sun and a moon for anymore... He came here. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. Us. It's our story too because he's still here with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of our only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one's ever seen God. The promise that he would be with his people and that they would see him, he's never fulfilled that up until now. Men have seen glimpses of him. Few men have heard his voice. But now, he makes himself available to be seen and known via the manger, via flesh, via incarnation. This is big. Why? Because he's fulfilling a promise that he's never made good on yet, and he is fulfilling it. He is making good on a promise. He's never done this before. His people are longing for it, and he's never done it. And now, no more shadowy sinner. Now he's going to do something he's never done. He's going to become flesh, and he's going to be seen. In the God-man. The one who would finally make a way. The one who gives us the right to be called children of God. No more shadows. Are you tired of hearing Scott talk about shadows? No more. <laughs> no more shadows, right? No more failure. No more sinners. He's, he's it. Here we go. God is coming into this world. The Word, the Son of God, the light, the life wasn't received. It was missed, and it was dismissed. And we can do the same in the microcosm of this Christmas season. We can dismiss Him and miss it. And, and one of the ways that we can miss that, I want, you to, I want to help you kind of jettison the Western mindset. And what I mean by that is because of where we live, because of what we've experienced growing up, especially in the South, uh, because of the church culture that we live in, we interpret and think through things differently. Not right, not wrong. East versus west. We're not talking about right and wrong. We're talking about different. 
And so we're affected by what we heard growing up, what we saw growing up, what was accepted growing up, what was not accepted growing up. And those things affect how we read ancient scriptures. And the Eastern mind interprets and reads and sees things in the ancient scriptures that sometimes we can miss simply because of where we've grown up. All right, And so I want to help us jettison some of that for just a minute. Many of us have a childish fascination with the manger. You think about all these kids up here just now that we're singing. Most of them have a fascination with the manger, but don't necessarily have their head wrapped around what's happening there. And that's okay. You don't fault them for that, right? We don't, we don't look down upon them. We're not condescending to them because they don't have their whole head wrapped around that God showed up. But you don't have that fascination, mom and dad. We can't stay there. We can't leave it at a childish fascination. It's not a theory. It happened. It was real. It was human. And it was divine. Frederica Green is a wife of a pastor in Maryland. She studied this Western thinking and this Eastern thinking uh, on the ancient scriptures. And this is what she says about the God-man and the incarnation. Listen close. This idea of the God-man is not strange or scandalous to us because it first swam in the milk and in the butter on top of our oatmeal at five years old. What she means by that is we, we heard about it and we said, that's strange, but I accept it. That's what five-year-olds do. That's strange, that milk and that butter that floats on my oatmeal. That's strange, but I'm not having a debate with myself whether I understand why that floats on top of my oatmeal. I just eat it, and it's good. And that's a childish fascination with the manger when we say, look, I know it's strange, but I'm not going to have a debate with myself and think and rest and investigate what's big and good about that. And I wonder if many of us haven't out... We just outgrew the manger. We just kind of left it there in theory. We left the fact that God came, and we said, well, that's strange. I don't really get it, but... I accept it. Now, where's my cookie? Just like a five-year-old would. She goes on to say, at that age, many things were strange, though most were palpable. So what, what did we run to at five? Something we could touch, something that we could experience with our senses. A God-filled baby in a pile of straw was a pleasant image, but somewhat theoretical compared to the heart-stopping exhilaration of a visit from Santa Claus. The way a thunderstorm would rip through the sky, the hurtling power of daddy's car, the rapture of good homemade ice cream. How could the incarnation compete with that? Did we accept it as strange and different, but just move on and outgrow it? Do you still have a five-year-old's understanding of what took place when the God of John 1 shows up in Luke 2? The manger is not taken serious by us. It's not as scandalous as, say, the cross. But church, we're not really in awe of the cross until we're in awe of what happened in that manger. I'm going to say that again, and I want to show you that to you in just a minute. But we're not really in awe of the cross until we're in awe of what he did in that manger. And it just illuminates the cross and makes the cross more rich. And that story of his life and his death 
And we can become enamored so much with the drama and the emotion surrounding the cross because somebody died. Okay, that's somebody died. I get it as a five-year-old. I understand somebody died. But God became man. Whew, uh, I don't really care to get wrapped up in the drama and the emotion of that because I probably don't understand it. It's too abstract. God is not offering another shadowy sinner here. What happens in the incarnation, in, in John 1, what we see here is that God offers himself. He's offering up himself. This isn't a plan. He doesn't manufacture a superhero. He doesn't create somebody. He doesn't give somebody special powers as a human sinner. He says, no, there is nobody else that can do this but me. I'll go. I'm going. I will be the offspring. I will do it. So God comes. He does it. He offers himself in that manger. The leap from John 1 to Luke 2 is ridiculous. It's absurd. I want you to see the leap that happens here. That the light in the life of men ends up in a feed trough. So turn to Luke 2. Let's look at this story. And let's read it not with our southern Bible Belt brain and heart. Let's read this in reality to see what's really taking place here. Emmanuel, God with us. And Emmanuel, when God shows up incarnate in the flesh, God is with us. Two things are happening there. Not only is he with us, but he is also for us. God's coming. God will be here. God is here. He is with us incarnate. That also means that he's for us. This son of God from John 1 shows up in Luke 2, and so he goes from being face-to-face -face with God to being face-to-face -face with sinners. He goes from being face-to-face -face with a holy God, his Father, to being face-to-face -face with sinners. But that means for us that he is not only with us, that means that he is for us too. And I want you to see that his coming and his, this Luke 2 manger scene, that means that he's for you in a way that Nobody else can be for you. It's a sweet way for God to be for you and that he became human. Listen to Hebrews 4. Just stay in Luke 2 and listen to Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When the God-Son puts on flesh, he's not just with me, now he's for me in every way because he's human. He's with me and he's for me. This is an humble incarnation. I don't want you to diminish the humanity of the event. Because we can read this story like Burl Ives is narrating it, and it can sound really um, kind of almost not theoretical, but it can sound mythical if, if we're not really climbing in to the story. You've heard Scott and Ben mention that a bunch. Climb into the story. I want to help you climb into the story by reinterpreting with modern-day language what's really happening here. 
And don't think about the cartoon or the story or the deep voice narrator, okay? Let's climb into this story and read it, and I'm going to help you with a couple of phrases here. Did I lose the mic? You want me to get that one for now? Got me now. Hello? Oh, we lost everything? Okay. of all things, Son of God, holy, all-powerful God, has relegated himself to, listen, being a dependent, immobile little baby. That creator, light of the new heavens and earth, don't need a sun and a moon anymore, is now a dependent, immobile baby. The leap is huge from the time came for you to give birth. It, It didn't go like that that Mary is there and she says to Joseph, the time has come for me to give birth. <laughs> See, you got to climb into the story. That's, it didn't happen like that. There was sweat and raised voices and probably some yelling. Here we go. My water broke. Here we go. I think it's time. And then the scurrying and the frantic and the panic that's what happens here we don't know how long her labor was but we know that the time had come for her to give birth it's bigger than just the time has come for me to have a baby and the next phrase is she gave birth to her firstborn son so the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son. So, that was easy. Took four and a half seconds. The time came, and she gave birth. Well, that's, that's pretty smooth. That's, that was easy. Man. <laughs> Birthing a child is painful. There's a reason they call it labor. It is a violent, and it is a fragile human moment. So many things can go wrong. There is so much exposure in that moment. And who is this baby? The Godson of John 1. The creator of all things. Comes into a violent, bloody, human moment. 
climb into the story. Wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. That is cute. Swaddling clothes were old clothes because they were probably a little soft from the wear and tear that they just tore and ripped in order to wrap a baby to comfort, comfort it and protect it. No onesies, no PJs. That's not where we're at here. Swaddling clothes. That, that would read, maybe, we wrapped him in strips of dad's old t-shirt and set him in a feed trough. I, I want you to know that's what's happening here, that we don't have onesies and PJs. We don't have a bassinet with a mobile hanging. It, this godson comes to a barn. And I don't know how many of y'all have been near a barn lately. You can swing by my house. It's not clean. I mean, it's, it's not a place I would set a baby. Most likely, there, were, there was leftover food from the inn. There was some sort of cured grass, hay, soft enough to hold the baby. But then we're not talking about ideal conditions here. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. He's dismissed from the get-go. Dismissed and set aside before he's even here. Before he's even born. No room for you. The barn. There you go. Lowly shepherds get the grand invitation. Lowly shepherds get the grand invitation. Not wise men. Now I want you to see something. Look at verse 8 through 15. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go. But I want you to see something. The wise men, most likely astrologers from another kingdom that were sent by that king to pay homage. So if this really is a king, they have a good relationship. The, the wise, rich, impressive men don't get the grand invitation. It's the lowly, blue-collar, good old boys that are living paycheck to paycheck that get the invitation. And he says th the angel says things to them that, he, that they don't say to the wise men. And the shepherds share something with Mary that they've seen that confirms and pleases and comforts her that the wise men don't say. They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the shepherds, the foolish of the world, confound the wise here. Do you see it? And so his coming is a lowly, humble, real human event. In Matthew's account in chapter 2, it even says that this baby, this Godson that becomes flesh, is even on the run for the first few months of his life. Just listen to Matthew 2, 
Speaking of the wise men. And going into the house, the wise men saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. And now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. The presence of the Son of God in flesh is a very real and immediate threat to the prideful and the selfish. When God shows up, he's a threat. A threat to what? Pride and selfishness. This is a modest human entry into creation for the God of John 1. Don't dismiss this humanity because we've been blinded by how we heard it growing up. Maybe we left it at a five-year-old thinking. We do the same thing with the birth of a child now. We've sterilized birth, this violent, fragile human event. We've sterilized it with sterile gloves, anesthesiology. We've sterilized it with blue curtains, experienced professionals, and words like obstetrics and neonatal and nursery. And the truth is, the birth of a baby is a very human event. It is violent, bloody, ultimately human and fragile. And the birth of this Christ child was not something that happened in a sterile environment with nurses and medicine. He barely had cover from the elements. It was very human and it was very humiliating. Just like the cross. His life begins with a humiliating and beautiful event and it ends with a bloody, violent, beautiful, humiliating event. You're, you're, we can't be in awe of the cross unless we're in awe of how he came. We've elevated the emotion and drama of the cross, but don't forget the manger. It takes faith to be in awe of this. Did you hear me? It takes faith to be in awe of this. It takes faith to know that this is a miracle. That God could, would come and that he would be tangible and that he would be here with us and that he would be for us in this way. It takes faith. The faith that it takes to believe that his cross completed and his resurrection completed the work, it takes faith to believe that he came in the first place. I'm going to wrap up with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote this little book, devotional book about, it's called God in the Manger. This is what he said. There are only two places where powerful and great in this world lose their courage, tremble in the depths of their souls, and really are afraid. And it's at the manger and the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you in awe of this manger? Am I? When you think about this Christmas season, are you being consumed by it? Or are you consuming Christmas? And this is what I mean by that, because that can sound real quippy and real bumper stickerish. <laughs> and I don't mean to be that way. But is this season consuming you? Or are you consuming this season? This is how you consume this season. You're in awe of the manger. That's how you consume this season. 
Are we in awe of this miracle that the Godson came and how he came and that he came? Living in awe of the manger is how you consume Christmas. Do you see the enormity of the incarnation? What's your motive for cooking the best food we've eaten all year? What's your motive for being so generous with the gifts? That, that's where this is a heart issue. This is an awe issue. What's our motive? And if it's in awe of the manger, then let's eat. And let's give. Because he did. So ask yourself. Because we should be celebrating. <laughs> we should be eating the best food this time of year. We should be generous. But not to make ourselves feel better but out of a heart that can't believe what he did in this miracle at the manger. Unbelievable, ridiculous, and absurd. Let's eat. He is good. He is with us, and he is for us. Get the best food out. Get the best wine out. Get the best gifts. I don't know what you struggle with, I don't know what your sins are. I know that most of you are probably a little bit frantic right now because of the time of year. I understand. I don't know what your heartaches are or have been. I don't know about the extent of your humanity and what that looks like completely. But I do know this, that God is with us and he is for us. And I've never been more convinced that he's with us and for us except that this manger miracle happened that's what convinces me that he is with us and he is for us and so as we come to take the supper here he is again he's on the scene again palpable tangible we take his body and his blood we eat the bread of life here he is he shows up again with us and for us in the supper Ever since Ben preached through John, my favorite chapter over the last eight years in the whole Bible is John chapter 6. And I want to read just a little bit of this, and then we'll take the supper together. This is Jesus talking, and this is what he says beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of God, looks on the Son of God and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him on that last day. Pray with me and then we'll pass out the elements. Father, keep us in awe of the manger. Thank you for showing up again today and being with us and for us in this supper. And I pray that we would take it in faith and take it rightly with repentant hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.